Hi, this is Jeremy Gritton, art director and story lead for Ori and the Will of the Wisps, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 69 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, February 7th, 2021. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we welcome G4's Senior Manager of Brand Marketing and the secret weapon of What's Good Games, Rihanna Manuel, is here to discuss her work on Ori, Tell Me Why, and as an industry advocate for marginalized voices. Beyond that, there's a mass effect that will be felt with the closing of Stadia Studios, and Embracer Group continues to do what it does best, embrace. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I want to do each and every week, I want to offer words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, the words of kindness are directed to Emmett Watkins Jr., a constant source of humor over on my Twitter feed and without fail, making me laugh every single time. I do not know if you listen to XCP, Emmett, but please know that you rock and I appreciate you each and every time I scroll through my socials. A bit of housekeeping, later on in this episode we'll be speaking with Rihanna Manuel, and next week we have an interview with Yacht Club Games' uh, Celia Schilling to talk about Cyber Shadow, Shovel Knight, and all the, the publishing and work that they are doing over there. That's on next week's episode, and for this week's episode, plenty to talk about, so let's get to it. Plenty of stories charting in this past week, each with their own tangential relationship to the Xbox ecosystem. And we start first with the news that broke in the early part of the week that in my estimation amounts to the end of Google Stadia. Now it might be exaggerant to think that a platform with the backing financially and technologically of Google would be dead, especially when that technology is as impressive as it is. However, let me know what you think on this one. Stadia announced that it's no longer going to develop games, and this was done so in a blog post from Stadia head Phil Harrison, a name you might know from other failed projects with Sony and Xbox. The executive at Google said that Stadia is going to be fleshing out its technology but is now going to back away from developing games for it. I have a quote for you. Quote, Given our focus on building proven technology of Stadia, as well as deepening our business partnerships, we've decided that we will not be investing any further in bringing exclusive content from our internal development teams, beyond any near-planned games. Over the coming months, more of the SG&E team will be moving on to new roles. We've committed to working with this talented team to find new roles and support them." End quote. Now, what Phil Harrison essentially is saying is that Google is shuttering, or rather Stadia is shuttering, all of its internal studios to develop specific content for Google Stadia and will instead be relying on outside sources for games to come to the platform. In many respects, what is most notable about this is that roughly 150 developer jobs are going to be dissolved. Google has committed to trying to find each of these developers uh, work and roles within Google. However, many are leaving the company, perhaps none more notable than Jade Raymond. You probably are familiar with that name as she has had quite a bit of influence on the Assassin's Creed and Watchdog franchises while she was with 
Ubisoft. Plenty of eyebrows raised on this one because many people are wanting just where the talent of Jade Raymond and many of these Google developers will end up overall. And with Microsoft making plenty of acquisitions and us being an Xbox uh centered showcase i think it's worthwhile wondering will we see jade raymond over at microsoft for my money and my estimation i would imagine ms raymond's phone is ringing non-stop with offers and considerations and just what kind of work she wants to do will likely determine where she wants to end up i think given the amount of money that xbox has been willing to spend they will certainly roll out uh, a garbage truck full of money to try and bring her over However, you'd have to think that everybody's doing that right now. Even Amazon, who is working to still get into the video game space with Luna and their new CEO, now that Jeff Bezos is gone, has doubled down in saying that they want to be involved in gaming as well. So it'll be very interesting to track just where the Stadia closings uh, end up, or the people that were part of the Stadia closings, where they end up uh, throughout the gaming industry, I know right now everybody wants to gobble up different types of developers to develop exclusive content for various subscription services, and Xbox included in that uh, should be no exception. We certainly want to see them do that. In regards to Stadia itself and Google itself, what type, what type of a place it was to work for those developers, Kotaku, Kotaku wrote up several stories, and one anonymous source said that Google was a terrible place to make games. Imagine Amazon, but under-resourced. Now, that is one quote from one statement uh, from one person out of many. Certainly so, and you have to imagine that there are going to be several disgruntled people when Google does announce that it's it's closing and shutting down so many jobs. But it has very much felt like Stadia did not have the commitment to developing and working with games the way that Xbox, Sony, and Nintendo have. The technology of Stadia, perhaps most closely mimicked by that of xCloud, was impressive, and as a method to deliver games to people on more screens, it's certainly you certainly can't take anything away from that. But it felt like Google always was dipping their toe in, but never committing to the actual process. Whereas Microsoft has doubled down on using that xCloud technology, Stadia was just teasing it here and there, and it's a bit frustrating to see this happen on some levels. On the other... Uh, I'm glad that it happened. I'm glad that it's showcasing that you can't halfway commit to gaming and expect to get rich quick. That's not how the industry works. Nintendo has long time proven their success by doubling down and committing to what it is they do best and then innovating on it. Sony, the same thing. And Xbox has been a mainstay since 2000 as well. And there were a couple points where we felt like Microsoft wasn't committed and they tripled back and, and covered their tracks on that course correcting. One thing that gamers don't do is reward half-assed approaches. They don't allow people to just partially try and then reward them with money and dollars. And so I, on many levels, I'm glad that this lesson was learned by Stadia. And I would imagine it motivates Amazon to make or break their decision early as opposed to limping their way through the first few years the way Stadia did. Lots of people wrote in with questions on this one, uh, and it's important to note that Stadia and Stadia Pro platforms are going to remain open on this in the wake of that news. Everybody's going to be able to keep playing games if you purchase them on Stadia. The tech is not going away. It's the development services. Now, on to a few questions. I think we're going to snag this one from Assemble Show. He says, Do you feel Stadia will be around in two years, or with the news of the game studio shutting down, is it just inevitable that they will shut down? Also, is there any room in the market for more game streaming services with Steam, xCloud, and PlayStation? 
Thanks. Assemble, great to hear from you, man. Your content's rocking over on YouTube. You rock, dude. Uh, as far as Stadia being around in two years, no, at least not in the format that it certainly is. Uh, if if Stadia is smart, they'll shop their technology around, perhaps sell it off to uh, one of the major third parties or even Sony itself. I think it's fair to say that PlayStation Now is lackluster at best, and given all the incredible exclusive content PlayStation has, a method of delivery for that content by way of something like Stadia would be fantastic and an industry-shaking maneuver. Um Microsoft has this with xCloud, they just like the catalog that seems to motivate more and more people into that space. I do not see much more room in the gaming space with what we currently have. We have Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft in the console space. Then Luna and Steam are out there existing in the streaming space with Xbox alongside it. You'd have to imagine that Nintendo uh, is, is going to investigate ways to bring... You know, more modernized approaches to delivering their games as well. And and frankly, I don't see Stadia surviving in its current form. And I really do question what Luna is going to offer. That said, there are moves being made on a business level that show any number of investors that gaming can be an extremely lucrative and profitable investment. Tencent dabbling their toes in. We'll talk about Embracer Group later on. If anybody is able to occupy an exclusive catalog space, have exclusive games for themselves and then find ways to stream that content out there, they're likely going to be successful if they do it and do it well. Epic Game Store is a good example of this. Nobody thought that anybody could conquer Steam or do anything in that space. They thought the Steam had a lock on the PC delivery space. Uh, even GOG Games couldn't seem to touch Steam. Epic Games Store came in, moved mountains, brought exclusive content. Uh, as far as free games is concerned, I should rephrase that. They brought you know, free games to people. They came in without a ton of things. Even the shopping cart debate was, was constantly a thing. But they made moves, they invested, and they rewarded people for using their service. Anybody can do that if they want to, if they're willing to spend the dollars early. And there's no reason to think that you can't have another major player in the space. That major player, though, has to commit. It can't be this half-hearted attempt to win people over and think you'll get rich quick. So, you know, Industry shaking in many ways. I have to imagine that uh, Stadia is going to fade away, but that technology will be a mainstay overall. I'm curious really how this impacts YouTube. I'm curious how this impacts other integrated services that Stadia could have offered. PlayStation seems to be doing their own thing where you can jump out and see guides at various points. I'd have to imagine xCloud is going to do something akin to that down the line. This a matter of integrating gaming into other mediums was tried multiple times by multiple companies, including Xbox with their Snap2 functions and the NFL things, uh, and it's failed. And cheers to the idea that innovation reigns king and we'll see more happen over the course of the next few years that paves the way for more delivery of games regardless of service. My verbal pun at the top of the show, notwithstanding, Mass Effect made moves and ranked quite highly on the news categories this past week with the announcement that their Legendary Edition would be releasing on May 14th for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. And of course, we can be playing that on our Xbox Series S and X's or PlayStation 5's by way of backward compatibility. Interesting to note that they did not or are not putting the resources into a Series S or X upgrade for now, and that it will simply be an Xbox One game with these remasters therein. 
My understanding is that the first Mass Effect is going through the most changes with upresing and the reworking of UI and, and gameplay elements to bring it more up to date than the others, which had less work to do. And that, of course, makes perfect sense given the release dates of them. Clint Combs wrote in on this one. He says, I can't wait to get back into the world of Mass Effect. I hope this edition is good and it's a start for Bioware to redeem themselves. Clint, I couldn't agree more. I fully agree that Bioware does need a comeback and it needs to be good. This collection of games, all three games under one umbrella with every single DLC available, save Pinnacle Station, which a uh, pretty interesting story. Pinnacle Station is from the first Mass Effect and while they were able to get their hands on the code, the code was corrupted and it would have taken another six months of work to get that last DLC therein to Mass Effect 1. That said, I'm ecstatic for this because I really didn't get into Mass Effect when it first launched, simply by way of the timing of when it came out, the type of game that it was at the time. Some of the obtuseness of RPGs uh, in the old version 360 era just didn't quite click with me when I first played them. And the idea that I can now jump in and play Mass Effects 1, 2, and 3 from the same launcher, the same way I can with Shovel Knight and all the Shovel Knight games, Halo with all the Master Chief Collection, and Hitman 3, it is an enticing thing, and I'm really in on that idea. And for 60 bucks to get that many hours of goodness, I am absolutely there for. There is also a physical version of this collector's edition that doesn't come with the game, but I did buy it. <clears throat> I bought it because it comes with this incredibly cool N7 helmet that I am just so in on, and... I'm ready to be a part of the Mass Effect universe. I often joked with my friend Kev, who loved Mass Effect, I would constantly be like, oh, Mass Effect sucks, when knowing full well that it didn't. It just never clicked with me when it first launched, and then by the time I was mildly interested in Mass Effect 3, I went back to play Mass Effect 1, and it was it aged very poorly, and so I'm really excited for this remaster and re-release with updated UI and graphics. We saw a lot of side-by-sides from the originals to the Legendary Edition, and the game looks great, and this is just the perfect way for players like myself or anybody else that lapsed or didn't uh, get it at the first time or for new players entirely to dive into Mass Effect. I will say this and beat this drum loudly that... When you have every game available or many games available in a story arc under one launcher, there is just something attractive to it, and I'm very much there for it. Uh, I'm curious, are you guys interested in the Legendary Edition? Are you interested in going back to the world of Mass Effect? Are you going to be new to it? Please let me know on Twitter at InsipidGhost or email me, insipidghost at gmail.com. I love reading those emails, getting those DMs. You guys are the best. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for Mass Effect. This is the right year for it, for me to be diving in. I'm excited. Embracer Group, the investment firm out of Sweden, has acquired yet another gaming studio. For context, this is the same investment group that now owns THQ Nordic, Cock Media, Coffee Stain, Deep Silver, Amplifier Game Invest, Saber Interactive, Deca Games, and they have now added yet another studio uh, to this, this list. Gearbox Software, the stewards of the Borderlands series, have been acquired by this Swedish investment group. And this sale was valued to be $1.3 billion. And there's a lot of thoughts that I have on this one. First and foremost, Embracer Group just seems to be gobbling up properties, studios, IP, whenever they can. It is 
wild just how much is falling under this Embracer Group umbrella. You've seen Tencent do stuff like this. Microsoft's been bringing tons of people under their own umbrella. Right now, it is a race to gobble up different types of gaming properties to see their sale and their outfit for profit down the line. It is, it is interesting to me all that much more because Embracer Group seems to be targeting the AA space. And in many ways, I think a few people might uh, balk at the idea of Gearbox or Borderlands being AA, but I would say that Borderlands is the outlier in Gearbox's suite, and everything else that they've been working on is decidedly AA. And feel free to write in if you disagree with that one. I, I would stand pretty strong in my discussion of it. But let's get back to this particular buyout. Gearbox is, of course, getting plenty of money, for this, uh, absolutely, and the company has said that 2K Games will continue to publish the Borderlands series, and that this money is going to be used to develop more stuff within their own engines. I I feel like there's a lot of ways to take this. I certainly feel like the writing is on the wall for Randy Pitchford, uh, the the head of Gearbox in many ways. Randy owns the company. Now that they've been purchased by Embracer, I'm curious to know what his role will be. I know that he's staying on with the company at this point, but it feels like over the years, as uh, Pitchford's mouth has run a few times when it perhaps shouldn't have, that his visual role, the optic levels that, that he is given, seems to be diminished more and more over time, particularly with Borderlands 3. When the early announcement of Borderlands 3, Pitchford was all over it, and then it felt like PR was trying to angle us away from Pitchford and talk more to the studio execs and the people that are genuinely working on, on creative directions for the game. I, I have to think that Embracer Group doesn't want someone like Pitchford shooting his mouth off, attacking GameSpot, and going after them in any way, shape, or form. And I'm just curious to see how that changes overall. The other part of this that feels a bit odd is that Embracer Group is just powerful now in the gaming industry with so many studios under their umbrella. And I just wonder what that means going forward. Does Embracer Group, you know, pilot a streaming service of its own? Do they, they shop their stuff out to be hitting PlayStation Now, Game Pass, uh, xCloud services, or anything else? What's going to happen there? And all these unique relationships within, uh, within each of these companies and people having minority stakes here and there uh, is really just setting us up for a future that... Looks, I think, very bright for the player, but very murky as to what you'll be playing where and at what time. Uh, for my money, though, cool. I love that the people that are, enjoy Borderlands are going to get to see it continue to be published under 2K, perhaps without interruption. I like that Gearbox, with its talented developers, are going to have more money to do creative and different things. It's just a matter of, all right, where is this going to go here? I, I'm, I'm just curious about it, you know, like what's going to happen? I mean... Embracer Group has even some of my favorite studios and franchises like Darksiders under its umbrella. I loved Darksiders Genesis. I really enjoyed uh, Darksiders 1 and 3 a lot. Darksiders 2 didn't quite click with me. They're now under that umbrella. Will technology be shared with these companies? Will we see different versions of these games, different imaginings of these franchises with different studios? There's so many questions, and yet I don't have any answers or even ideas for them. Edward Varnell wrote in with a question for me that I'm not even sure I know how to answer. He says, Do you feel that the Gearbox acquisition announcement fell flat? It seemed like nobody cared, and although it's good for Gearbox, gamers still feel upset that a particular CEO uh, is there. And he's, of course, talking about Randy Pitchford. His question, beyond the fall flat aspect, is, Would a smash, uh, would a smash announcement have destroyed this story? 
I'm not quite... Do you mean Smash Brothers, Edward? I mean, Smash Brothers certainly seems to be... That'll dominate any news cycle whenever you, you launch anything there. But the bigger question here of whether or not the announcement fell flat... Uh, yeah, kind of, I guess so. I just I don't think people really care that about Gearbox much the way that perhaps Gearbox would think that we do. Uh, I also don't think it's surprising to see Embracer Group gobbling up another another studio, you know, even even one as highly valued as, as Gearbox. What's interesting more, though, are the questions that I've listed already. You know, what happens to the companies, to the technologies, what happens to the various roles of the developers, the, the CEOs? The, the optics of Embracer Group seem very odd because we've not seen tons of releases under their umbrella, just acquisitions. So I'm very curious what happens uh, in the future, but it is a little odd that something as powerful as Gearbox and, and a news story like this did kind of fall under the radar in the wake of the Stadia closing, some of the real-world news that was taking place, and it felt like more people cared about the Mass Effect news therein. Uh, good point, Edward. Good, good point. What's going on, everybody? This is Malik Prince from Team Xbox, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Before we get to the last of the listener questions for this week, a bit of housekeeping, a reminder that the Rihanna Manuel interview is this episode, and next week's episode will feature Yacht Club Games' Celia Schilling to talk about Cyber Shadow and Shovel Knight. In that vein, I actually started playing Shovel Knight. There was a campaign I'd not gotten to. It was one that released late in 2019, I believe, uh, with the King of Cars campaign, and I am a huge Shovel Knight fan. I absolutely adore that game, Shovel of Hope and Spectre Knight's campaigns are among my favorites. I'd not played the King of Cards one, and Celia encouraged me to do that. So I have just started playing that after finishing up my time with Cyber Shadow. Cyber Shadow is the one published by Yacht Club, and I talked about it on previous episodes, and I hit a difficulty ceiling with that game. I'd put about eight hours in, just gotten to the double jump, which I'm told is about halfway through, and better players are beating this game in three and four hours. Not me. I've put in eight plus at this point, I really love Cyber Shadow, but the game just gets too difficult uh, to the point where I wanted something that was still retro-inspired, but uh, a bit easier on my soul. And that's what you know part of what brought me back to Shovel Knight King of Cards. Playing that right now, as well as a recently released game called Werewolf Apocalypse Earthblood. It's a part of the World of Darkness series, which has a huge and massive amount of lore that I had never heard of and, and don't really have any intention of checking out. Um, there's been a lot of feedback on Werewolf that is telling you that the game is straight out of the, the mid-2000s. It's a third-person brawler and that there's really nothing special. And I would agree with all of that. However, I'm having a blast with it, and I seem to be among the minorities there that, that, are, that are liking this game. I'm liking a... a low-stakes game that I just go through and mash buttons and have a good old time in. It certainly doesn't have the AAA depth that you would expect from a third-person action game in 2021, but I'm enjoying it for its just casual arcadiness, uh, for lack of a better term. There, there, there are lots of issues there, but as I often say, I enjoy swimming in sevens, and this feels like a low seven, and I'm still having fun with it. I did get a code from the developer, though, and that might play a bit in. This is certainly a wait-for-sale game for anybody else. I would argue that this is a wait-for-sale game unless you just want to mash buttons and have some pretty cool transitions between uh, being a human and a werewolf and then your, your super-evolved version of that werewolf. It looks really dope. Um, but it's a budget game, to, to, to say the least. I do want to play more of it before I give you guys a full review, but it's fun. 
I'm enjoying its casual nature. Just just don't get your hopes up on a AAA experience. It's the perfect type of game to be meshed into my January, February, March, you know, next to Hitman, next to Shovel Knight, next to Cyber Shadow. Uh, it's fitting in well with my tastes, but I certainly wouldn't say that this is a top-of-the-line game. More on it next week. Let's get to some listener mail. This first question comes from Stuart, and he says, What surprises do you think Microsoft have up their sleeve this year? They've definitely said they have unannounced stuff in the works for this year. Oh man, Stuart, well they have to have more than Halo Infinite, and it cannot be only news stories that revolve around acquisitions. I'd fully expect something out of the Forza series, but even then, uh, Forza doesn't move the needle, nor does Halo in the ways that we are talking what they need is something outside of Gears, Forza, Halo, and other other established franchises. They need something new. The big question, though, is that where and when is that going to be coming? Will that happen in 2021? And from what studios will it be from? They've certainly acquired lots of studios, Stuart. They have the developers to do it, but we don't have any reliable information on what's coming this year, whether or not any of those will be AAA efforts, uh, and I don't see anything that's going to move the needle for units for Xbox Series S or Xs uh, after we've outpaced the initial demand for them in like waves one and two of what we're seeing right now. Because right now, Series Ss and Xs and PlayStation 5s, they're selling like hotcakes faster than they can be produced. But eventually that will die down, perhaps as the pandemic pressures uh, release as, as more vaccines get out there or if we see a reduction in, in stress numbers and in flattening that curve and people are able to get out of their homes, gaming may become less important and less pivotal, thus reducing the amount of demand. But I don't see anything that moves the needle as far as Xbox AAA exclusives beyond Halo Infinite and Forza. And even then, I don't think they do the job that we're talking about here. They need a reinvention, a God of War style thing, and they need something that moves the needle that is new and fresh the same way that uh, Horizon Zero Dawn was on the PlayStation side. I think State of Decay 3 looks great. I think Hellblade 2 looks great. I think a lot of what we've seen is really promising, but nothing that is that S-tier rank move the needle in 2021. Of course, they have unannounced projects. I don't know if those are going to be uh, a tier, B tier, C tier, what are we looking at in that particular uh, prospect? Uh, they've certainly not given us any indication that there's something major happening, but who knows, right? Like there's just so many unknowns. And if I were them, I'd be very hesitant to announce something that they can't deliver on in this year because they're working on rewriting the Xbox narrative going forward. They've got the services, they've got the studios, they've got the hardware, uh, at least in its design. They can't get it out to people. Now they need the software top-tier stuff happening. This next question comes from a man, Eric J. E.C. Jackson on Twitter. He says, Hey, bro, with Sega back in the rumor rotation, gamers tend to focus more on the big acquisitions. With so many talented indie developers out there uh, that are often overlooked, what... what do you have one that you think would be great for Xbox's roster? As a Joe Maduara fan, I am partial to Airship Syndicate. Eric, that is a fantastic question. A lot of the ones that I would have wanted them to gobble up are already taken. Moon Studios would have been the top tier one uh, in that respect there. However, your statement about Airship Syndicate, and for any listener that's unaware, they made Darksiders Genesis and Battle Chasers, I believe it's Night War. 
That would be a wonderful addition. Now, currently, they exist, I believe, under Embracer Group with THQ Nordic. I certainly uh, have not taken the time to look that up and confirm it at this time, but I love that idea. Darksiders Genesis was one of my favorite, one of my favorite games uh, of last year. I just adored that game uh, and what it did for Darksiders, and I would love to see the talent behind it end up in an Xbox-specific space. You also have to wonder if the closing of the Stadia Studios will bring people over in there as well. The developers of Journey to the, of the Savage Planet, Alex Hutchinson, uh, great game that came out everywhere but then was gobbled up by Google and now is likely released by Google. Uh, I'd like to see them grab him as well. That'd be a good one, but that's a good question. We get it often, and uh, really and truly, it rotates from from week to week, you know? Week to week, it it seems to do that. But yeah, I like your idea of Airship Syndicate. If they could wrestle away the talent there, I'd be all for it. I think they're stuck under THQ, though. Let's do one more listener question before we talk to Rihanna. This last one comes from Famous Seamus, the most famous Seamus ever that I have ever met myself. And he says, with the Mass Effect Legendary Edition coming out, are there any more games that you want to see remastered? Or do you want to see developers focus on new experiences? That is a a great question, Famous Seamus. There are certainly games that I want remastered. Many of them are stuck under the licensed game categories of old. I think one thing I really enjoy uh, about the Xbox 360 generation and the generations prior is they were just massive gobs gobs of licensed games star wars titles uh, spider-man titles several several superhero genre type things uh and like i'm thinking about like wolverine origins that movie may have been bad but man oh man that game was dope i would love to see some of those older licensed games be rescued and brought back to the forefront one of the things that we are are in danger of doing is remastering games that need another remaster now. And when we call them remastered, when we should perhaps be dating them, think about Resident Evil 1. Resident Evil 1's been remastered. It's already happened. And yet that remaster, as it were, feels dated now. So there needs to be some way to to adjust our wording on that so we don't get confused, maybe throw some dates on there. Really and truly, though, to the latter portion of your question, do you want to see developers remaster or focus on new experiences? New experiences are always what I want to see developers do. However, there are specialist studios that work on remasters. Bluepoint comes to mind, of course. I really like that idea that there are studios that focus solely on remastering what already exists, and we don't do that at the expense of creating new titles. At least that's something that I would like to keep in mind. But that is a great question, Seamus, and I hope that you and anybody else are willing to write into the show and let me know what games you want to see brought back uh, for sure. Some of my obscure ones, I want Star Trek Legacy to come back. I really like that game. (laughs) Uh, It's always obscure stuff because we got a lot of the... The, the games that are mainstay, they're available via Back and Pat and, and the various upscales and the free masters that Xbox tends to do. Um, so, good question. Good question. Alrighty, guys, that's going to do it for my portion of this episode. I'm going to kick you over now to one of my most favorite interviews to date, if not my most favorite interview to date. I sat down with Rihanna Manuel, a long time coming. We've been talking for a while uh, about just working together, getting her on the show, and it just... It really hit home. She counseled me a lot on air and off about uh, how we respect marginalized voices in the gaming industry, how that has evolved. She talked a lot about her work on one of my favorite games, Ori and the Perline Forest and Ori and the Will of the Wisps. She talked about her time in Tell Me Why. I learned a lot 
about the research that Xbox put into their various games to allow for better representation, the better uh, highlighting of relevant voices and not just doing the same thing over and over again. It was such a joy to talk to Rihanna, and my heart just felt full afterwards, and it's great uh, it, it's great when gaming can go beyond just gaming and really reach you on, on a friendship level, on a personal level, and that's what this interview did uh, quite seriously, and it was a joy to have Rihanna on. Of course, I would encourage you always to go follow her at Rihanna Tweets now on Twitter. She's doing incredible work over with G4 that she can't talk but too much about, but she's also doing other things that are just consistently spotlighting the best the gaming industry has to offer and putting light in places where shadows dominated too much for too long. So enjoy this interview. Uh, allow it to educate you. There's so much to, to take away from it. I hope you love it. I hope you enjoy it. Of course, you can find this show on any and all podcast services, including YouTube now. I kind of have just the audio files sitting over there. You can follow that over at the Xbox Expansion Pass on YouTube. That's it for me, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Take care. Stay safe. Enjoy. Alrighty, today we are very fortunate now to be joined by someone described as the secret weapon of What's Good Games, a product marketing manager of Xbox for Ori and Tell Me Why, and now the senior manager of brand marketing over at G4, a woman of many hats, Rihanna Emanuel. Hi, hello. (laughs) It is hard to do an intro for someone who is... Uh, as diversified a portfolio as you, and so I am <laughs> so good to have. I'm so pleased to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, like I was saying before we started recording, we've we've been going back and forth on Twitter for quite some time now. So it's nice to finally get a conversation on the books. Uh, I am thrilled to have it. It is a wonderful way to to end cap my week and to let listeners uh, learn more about you. And that's kind of our focus today, Rihanna. How did you? decide or make the move to get into the gaming industry? Yeah, um, (laughs) it's actually a little dark, I guess. So I, many people don't know, I came from healthcare and I went to school for healthcare. I got my master's in health information management, uh, worked for University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in the insurance side and wore many hats over in that in that realm as well and was completely miserable I I went in initially wanting to make things better for people make a positive change (laughs) in our very flawed system and 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 try to do some good but I was realizing more and more that I wasn't able to do that in the positions that I held so I sort of put a blast out to all of my friends and family saying like hey I want a career change I'm going to move away from Pittsburgh because this was post-grad school all my friends had left town (laughs) I was ready to to completely uproot my life and start over and my sister-in-law actually sent a message back saying like hey I know you like games and and this team over at Xbox is looking for new hires for project management and I said hey let's set up a meeting and I met with them And long story short, in 2015, I started over on the international project management side doing localization for lots and lots of games. So the way I got into games was honestly out of desperation and and a need to really point my life in a direction where I felt good again. And I did it. And I'm really happy I did. When was this? Like kind of what year roundabouts was that? Yeah, it was uh, end of 2014 was when I started really looking 
in in earnest for a change in a new scene and 2015 i want to say like the first week in january got the job sold my car and moved from pittsburgh to seattle that's the big risk that that you hear about so often from some of these success stories but to arrange an interview in a meeting after being in healthcare that has to be such a a different change how do you market yourself at the time i suppose how did you market yourself i have these skills from healthcare to product manager for games yeah it, it's honestly i guess it's in hindsight not a surprise i landed in marketing because that's exactly what i had to do i had to pull on all of my transferable skills both hard and soft and figure out what about managing systems and putting in place new technology for healthcare companies translated into releasing games. And honestly, it came down to software. I was working in software, you know, doing testing, doing quality insurance checks. It, it, it was a very, very easy um, translation for me. And because I had that, that background and that history of being a gamer, you know, my first system I got when I was three years old, um, I had the the background knowledge needed to sort of fill in any gaps that I would have had um, if I had been, you know, into any other hobbies instead. So it was pretty simple for me to say, I know how to manage projects and I know gaming, therefore gaming project manager makes sense for me, um, regardless of the fact that my work history was all centered in a completely different industry. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And your sister-in-law messages you to say, hey, you like games. Uh, Mm -hmm. My understanding is you were a member of the community, kind of funny community, the What's Good Games communities prior to this move. I suppose What's Good wasn't around just yet. (laughs) Not uh, yet. did Did that help inform your decision as well? Yeah, and I had been lurking in the kind of funny community. Came a became a mod after um, the move out to Seattle, but I had always been very vocal about loving video games. There's, I like to say, there's two loves in my life. There's dance and there's games, and sometimes they end up being the same thing when there's the magic of connect involved. And um, everybody knew that about me, so I had been sort of doing some self-brand marketing you could say my entire life by just saying hey I'm a goofy little black girl I like to dance I like to play video games and my sister-in-law I hadn't known her very long but she already knew that is what I really really loved to do so I, I would say if I were to pass on any lesson to anybody that I've learned over time it's just like be loud about the things that you love because people will notice and if there are opportunities for you to do more of that they're going to try to put them in your path. And I have a sign that I usually have up in my office. I'm still still getting set up over here in L.A. But it says, um, do more of the things that you love. And 100% that has made an incredible difference in my life. And this is just one example. It's funny. You say, be loud about the things you love. I distinctly remember, Rihanna, a tweet you made somewhere <laughs> in 2020 where you were speaking to your love of dance and apologizing for neglecting it at mm-hmm. one point. Uh, quite seriously, to this day, I think about that from time to time when I get back into martial arts or do something that I haven't done in a long time. And it's it's just a kind of a neat thing to, to hear you say, be loud about the things you love, because I think of that tweet that you made quite often. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> oh, that's, that's sweet. I'm glad it resonated. It did. And I'm sure it did for many people. You say uh, you said Xbox and I imagine many ears perked of course being that this is the Xbox expansion pass uh, <laughs> I 
again, I, I would say that I learned of you from your work with Don't Nod and Tell Me Why, probably several of those uh, product marketing manager positions that you took there. Yeah. You've told me how you ended up at Xbox, but what does a product marketing manager do? <laughs> <laughs> it's a fair question because, you know, in, in most corporate jobs, if you've never been around it or worked with that position, it's it's gobbledygook, right? It's just mm -hmm. kind of a black hole of like, I don't know, they go to work and they type stuff and then they think they get paid for it. And it's more or less what it is. But um, at Xbox, at least, <clears throat> the product marketing manager is responsible for telling the story of why a, a video game that they're responsible for marketing is cool and fun to play and trying to talk to the people who would be interested in it so that they know about it. Um, that's kind of the, the pedestrian answer. The more in-depth answer would be I plan marketing activations, uh, come up with cool things that would get the word out about the game, uh, look at the progress on the game and try to predict when there would be stuff to talk about to the public, like when demos would be ready, when people could expect DLC, for instance, if it was uh, a game like Sea of Thieves. And, uh, you know, just get that conversation going with folks who you know would be fans. Um, I like to make the distinction, I am a marketer, I am not a salesperson. I'm not trying to sell anyone anything. I'm trying to tell them what they would like about something. And I find that I have an easier time with that conversation rather than saying like, oh, everybody should play this game. Pretty much no game should have everybody as a fan. Um, it wouldn't be very good, in my opinion, um, unless it's something like Fortnite or Minecraft where you just make your own game out of it and it's basically just a creation tool or dreams, for instance. But if I'm looking at the position of product marketer, it's really just telling folks what's cool about something so that they can get access to it and enjoy it. And then continuing to tell that story to more and more people who would be interested. That's interesting. I had not thought of the difference between salesperson, as it were, and marketer. But being so specific about, hey, if you like X, you will like Y. Am I, am I on the right track with that idea? Yeah, absolutely. It's the audience segmentation reporting that what you just explained. Well, that is the coolest thing. Y'all hear that? I just did audience <laughs> segmentation reporting. That is You got awesome. a knack for it. You're natural. <laughs> there we go. So, uh, I again, Ori and tell me why. Mm -hmm. Did you did you work on Ori first, I'm guessing? Yeah, so I worked on the first story actually, uh, Blind Forest as the localization producer and went to a few different places in Microsoft and marketing and then came back to the gaming side to start working on Will of the Wisps. And <clears throat> I came in the beginning of 2020, surprisingly. It was a very short amount of time, uh, but I did a lot. And um, the very first thing I was tasked with was executing, oh, I remember, one of the very first things I was tasked with was executing this huge launch party down here in LA where we had moving walls with all of the backgrounds from the actual game, like actual scenes from the different levels in Will of the Wisps. We had themed drinks, different people walking around with cocktails that had, you know, this, the dry ice smoke coming out of it. We had the, the leaves coming off of the ceiling just to make you feel like you were in the forest. And we had a live owl there as a photo op. It was pretty amazing. And um, something like that, uh, compared to what I did before in the first story where I was literally managing the translations and uh, all of the age ratings was very different. Um, but I would say that my love for marketing Ori and for working on it as a PM w was the same. And 
lots of games are fantastic but Ori is a very very special property the spirit and the love that the team has developing the Ori games is unmatched I haven't seen anything like it um if you if you're not aware the first story had a very small team um and they were folks who collaborated internationally they were all over the world and they hardly ever met in person so they were actually in sort of like a quarantine situation that we've struggled through for the past year um the whole time they were making both games and it's impressive that they were able to pull it off the way they have and they have true masters of their craft on that team and God, I, I just honestly, I can't say enough nice things about it. Please uh, know that Ori holds a special place in my heart. Uh, audio listeners, all, everyone's an audio listener. I'm holding out my little <laughs> Ori guy that I think I see oh, on your shelf oh, behind you. I yes. Do. I, I bought this guy because I, and it thrills me that I get to tell you this, I've used Ori in the Blind Forest and Ori in the Will of the Wisps in my classroom to teach mm-hmm. nonverbal storytelling. And yeah. to teach audience, uh, uh, to teach environments and tone and mood to middle schoolers because those two games master it without using words, mm-hmm. and and there's there's something brilliant about that. I also remember those same. I feel like I saw uh, social media posts about that event that you're talking about, the bamboo yeah. uh, mm-hmm. special stuff. So you worked on that. That's really cool. Yeah, I worked on that. I was there. Um, obviously, I'm not <laughs> the only person responsible. Sure. Huge, yeah. huge effort from lots of folks and, and an amazing team. And um, God, like it, when you get to be a part of experiences like that, and unfortunately due to COVID, we weren't able to fly out all the devs to that event to meet the fans, which was one of the big parts that I was excited for. Um, it, it's really great to see people feel the magic of something in real life that most people only get because they understand video games and at that event, we had press, we had, you know, some high-profile people around L.A., people who maybe wouldn't play Ori and feel the way you and I do about it, but they were able to feel the way that we do when we play those games, right? And and that's something that I really appreciated, getting an opportunity to be a part of as a marketer, is bringing what I love about something to life for other people who wouldn't otherwise understand it. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And we were fortunate to have Jeremy Gritton on the show as well to talk about the story and the elements of, of that, and that's just really neat. But you worked with an, I would argue, uh, equally intense emotional experience with Tell Me Why. And, I, I, goodness, what challenges arise when working on a game that has such a social importance, such as Tell Me Why? And feel free to expand on uh, what Don't, Don't Nod's project was about for listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So Tell Me Why is a, a game from Don't Nod. It features... Two twins, Tyler and Allison, and they have spent a number of years apart due to a traumatic event in their childhood and come together to go through the belongings and get ready to sell their old family home. And honestly, at the core of it, it's a story about family. It's a story about returning home, rekindling those relationships in whatever way makes sense for you. Um, There are different decision paths you can take and tell me why. There's a bit of a mystery (laughs) to solve as well. And um, for people who like puzzles, those are there too. And for people who like really amazing acting and beautiful scenery, that's here as well. I think there's a little something for everybody and tell me why. And it's definitely not a game everyone should play. But I would say anybody who plays it will find something to love. And when you talk about the the different social importance of tell me why, um, Tyler, one of the twins, is a transgender man. And something else that is 
a little less well known about Tell Me Why is that it takes place in a place where um, there are lots of indigenous culture influences. And one of the things that I think is so incredible about Don't Nod and the Microsoft publishing team is they actually spent the time, the money, the energy to go to um, Huna, Alaska and to study Klingit culture. They sat down with the elders of the village, spoke with the local police chief. They actually pulled from the stories of real people to inform the game rather than going based on what they thought they knew about those people in that place. Something else that was amazing, and, and I touched on this in one of the, the vid docs that I created with the, with the production team, is they actually did as much inclusive casting as possible. And inclusive casting is sort of difficult to do on smaller projects, but still even hard to do on large ones, where if you have Tyler, who is a transgender man, it's really hard to cast him in English and in Portuguese and in Japanese and in every single iteration of the game's translation. So I pulled on some of my experience um, prior as localization manager, but um, the team that did the audio direction, they, I don't know how they pulled it off, but they found a transgender man to play Tyler and it was really, really effective. And they stayed true to the, the roots of other characters who are also queer, also indigenous, and to, to let people tell their own stories or to do as much of it as you can and to make sure that the lived experiences of the folks who are creating something translate into the final product, it's really hard. And they didn't have to do it that way. It would have been a lot cheaper, faster, easier to just cast whoever they thought sounded best. But like I said, Microsoft, specifically Xbox, and Don't Not knew how important it was to be truthful to the product and authentic and it's something that you don't see a lot, and I hope it's something we see more of. And one of the best pieces of feedback we got, you know, as the marketer, I saw all of it, uh, was um, this is, a, I think they said, the new gold standard in representation. And that's something that I think the team is really proud of, and they should absolutely hang their hat on. I would certainly think so. You touched on stuff that even I didn't know within there, particularly about the indigenous cultures. And yeah. as stressful and tense and what felt like a pressure cooker of a year in 2020 that probably was uh, all that much more important for so many of the people that got to see themselves in a game like tell me why and i think to not because this is the xbox expansion pass but because i i see so many different people in the world of games i see xbox and microsoft work very hard to continue expanding their horizons and amplifying marginalized voices uh, it started, at least to my very amateur understanding, uh, when I would see women in gaming trending mm -hmm. or blacks in gaming trending. And even I wasn't sure about the wording of that. That kind of threw me for a loop the first time. But to see it then extend and continue as they tried to bring in Latinx communities and to know now that it wasn't just research from a computer screen, but going and visiting people, going mm -hmm. and having the discussions and, and hearing the voices, as it were, discuss their experiences about a game that does so many different things. Were there any things that, anything, let me rephrase. Was there anything that you learned that took you by surprise in any of this? Yeah, uh, without getting super, super nerdy about voice casting, I'll quickly touch on one thing in that realm. Um, I learned from the incredible team <laughs> that did all of the audio direction that doing inclusive casting is really, really hard for 
good reasons. Um, a lot of protections are put in place in identifying voice actors so that they aren't discriminated against. And those very same protections make it difficult to find people with a certain lived experience. So if you're looking for, for instance, a queer indigenous young man <laughs> to play uh, to play a role in an upcoming title, it's hard to find that because the fact that he's queer may not be known. The fact that he's indigenous may be suppressed. So I think the industry in general and many industries, if we're being honest, have a long way to go in striking that balance between protection and representation because without knowing who someone is, it's hard to make sure that they get heard and that their unique perspective is seen. But at the same time, you don't want people to be discounted or even un even unconsciously biased against for that very same identity. So that was a really interesting learning that that we, we had to deal with and work around as a team and figure out a way to tell that story. So so once again, people can learn from what we what we found out. Um, something else that was really, really interesting to me was that uh, there aren't many indigenous characters in games. And as a black woman, I am constantly aware of black representation in games. But indigenous folks have a lot further to go as well. And it's something that wasn't on my radar before. Um, it's a gap in my knowledge. And I, I like to try to do everything that I can to fill those gaps when I recognize them. As, as I like to say, once I know better, I try to do better. But... It, I didn't realize how bad it was. So those are two things that were really illuminating for me that I learned working on that project. I love that phrase because that is a phrase that I think I and many others probably uh, worked to do in a year where we, we had to do a lot of reflecting and learning in positions of privilege and otherwise. And a sentiment I want to get back to is you said you want to and you need to see more of this in the world of gaming. I've seen yeah. Xbox make those efforts uh, in, in terms of accessibility by way of adaptive controllers and interfaces and also by going out and doing this research for different types of voices in gaming. Do you think there's a hesitance to do this? I mean, when you think of big corporations, you don't necessarily think about the people involved. Do you think there's a, mm -hmm. a hesitation or a worry or a financial stopgap to t send teams out to go do things is that why does this happen do you think that we have suppressed voices in the world of gaming specifically yeah i would say honestly i think most of it comes down to risk aversion i think games are an incredibly risky business um, specifically making games and they cost a lot they take a lot of time there's a lot of ways that you could lose as a game creator and anything that makes it more difficult is is going to be a little less appealing right um, you don't want to add to your your casting process you don't want to add to your dev costs you don't want to add to to all of the potential criticisms you could open yourself up to so telling a story that a team is not familiar with living is risky but despite the fact that none of the people at Don't Not are indigenous Americans, they wanted to tell that's part of the story. And so they went out to those people and they, they talked with them. They learned from them and they pulled directly from their lives in order to highlight their experience without trying to say it for them. Um, they brought them commerce. They, they brought them exposure. And um, I, I think 
everyone's heart is usually in the right place. I don't want to say game devs are scared, but I think it's, again, risky to do things like that because there's so many ways that it could not work out in your favor. And you always want to stay in the game to make another game, right? Like not many devs are in it to say, hey, this is the one game I ever want to make. Peace out. Um, I mean, that's great if that's the way that they're seeing it, but um, longevity is difficult to achieve and, and anything that challenges that is, is going to be hard, a hard pill to swallow for most teams. So I think that's probably the why. I don't think it's a good enough why to not do it, which is why projects like Tell Me Why are so important to me. Um, but, you know, I think what, will take, what it will take to see more progress in that space is for the audience to have an appetite for it. With COVID, I would imagine that a lot of the industry panels and discussion times and times where people get together to kind of perhaps have those conversations, uh, yeah. they may not have happened when they needed to. Or perhaps with the ease of, of a Zoom call, they were able to happen more often. Are you seeing more companies, I don't, if you're able to answer, are you seeing more companies outside of Xbox work to try to be more inclusive? I haven't had a good beat on what other companies are doing in that space. I would like to say yes. I would like to say it would be more if the dev team at Tell Me Why and the publishing team from Tell Me Why were at DICE talking about the project with other developers and publishers. But I think those conversations will continue to happen. Tell Me Why was incredibly successful. It was critically acclaimed, still winning awards now. Um, it shows that it can be done and it can be done in a way that is still, it still delivers a good product. Um, it, nothing suffered in the product for all of that work. Um, so I, I think it's still a conversation that will continue to happen, but COVID and quarantine has definitely slowed it down. Um, and of course this is only one example. The indie creation space has been doing this for years. Like we're behind honestly in the AAA space and, I think there's still a lot of learnings that we can take from an indie space and, and from indie creators. And it'll happen over time as people gain more notoriety, make more games, get a little bit more well-known. Um, and then hopefully it just becomes something else that we talk about and not a new thing. Mm -hmm. Man. Equally important, but perhaps not in the same vein of, of tell me why you have done an incredible amount of work at raising awareness for people of color uh, in the gaming industry, working to uh, amplify voices where necessary, call out injustices or suppression where you see it. That had to be an extremely stressful and probably is a still stressful <laughs> thing to do in a tumultuous year like 2020 and now 2021. I suppose I don't have a specific question, Rihanna, Apart sure. from asking you to speak a bit on the importance of this and whether or not you found some of these efforts successful and where your heart is at this moment with that. Yeah, I would say absolutely I've seen these efforts become successes in certain spaces. I won't, I won't touch on politics, but I know in gaming, it has made a difference. Voices like mine and many others who came before me have been heard and that was evident even in just like the list of creators that we touched that, that we reached out to for tell me why for instance we had way more black creators way more queer creators on our list we we worked with influencers that had never engaged with xbox before and those relationships have been very very beneficial both ways um, and i think that helps open the door and open people's minds to 
do more than the usual, do more than what they're used to, work with people who they don't know already. And as I said before, the gaming industry is, is very risk averse sometimes because there's so much to lose. So it's easy to lean on those friendships and relationships that you've had for years if you're a PR person, if you're a marketer, if you're a publisher, even if you're a dev. And you want to collaborate with folks you're comfortable with. And it's difficult to work outside of your comfort zone in any industry, but in games even even more so. So I think this year in the efforts that I have made have made a difference in opening people's minds, opening people's circles, and, and really encouraging people to, as you said, challenge their preconceived notions or their previous beliefs because we're, we're never going to be right about everything and we're never going to get everything 100% right. So it's okay to start wherever you're at, but once you know better, you should try to do better. And I think that is happening more and more as people are forced to sit with themselves more often in quarantine. And I think we have seen some strides. I think Black History Month looks a little different this year than it had before. I think representation outside of tentpole months is looking a little different than it has before. Um, I'm seeing people who know what intersectionality means now, and I don't have to explain it. Um, Afro-Latinx is not a term that people need to be explained anymore. So, so I think we're getting better. I hope it continues when when things open up again and when the world comes back. I've noticed a lot of the, rep- the, the repercussions and the ripple effects of those various efforts because creators that I've been following for years, uh, white creators, were talking about it in, in learning and adjusting their verbiage. And it was something that I'd seen many of them already doing uh, in response to some social issues, but all that much more when it came to people of color. And I'm now hearing... Of, uh, from content creators, analysts, uh, people of color, beyond just the two or three, you yeah. know, the mm-hmm. two or three who are wonderful human beings, but it was always the two or three, and now it's, it's more, and it's continuing to, to broaden my horizons in the best ways, and um, I, I love it selfishly because <laughs> I get to show off uh, these creators to students, to young people, to young girls, young boys uh, um, who uh, have any number of of ethnic backgrounds social backgrounds demographic backgrounds coming from any different place it's it's brilliant and so i'm appreciative of of those efforts to you and to all the people that you've partnered with on various levels to do that it's uh it's it's appreciated i lose my (laughs) i lose my words in those types of moments i apologize no that's okay It, it is a little bit of an emotional moment um i've People are amazing, and I, I, I'm one of those, those folks who believe in the genuine goodness of most people. Um, some people have some things they need to work on, but in general, most folks are trying to make the world an okay place for them and the ones they love. And some folks have reached out to me saying that seeing me speak out and, and hearing messaging that I, I like to perpetuate and learning about sites like June Justice or figuring out like can I play that is a Twitter account that they should follow if they have someone in their life who has different accessibility needs for gaming like I I love bringing people to information that can make their lives better that's ultimately all I've ever wanted to do and to hear that I am doing that it it touches me it really does so thank you thank you for sharing that 
Um, you're welcome. I'm taking notes on the stuff that you're mentioning that I don't know. June Justice <laughs> is new to me. This is wonderful. I believe, well, I, I think I know, but it, things I need to learn more of and I'm appreciative of. Um, perhaps I can lighten the mood, though, for us uh, before <laughs> we close out tonight. Uh, there are a couple more that I have for you. Uh, this is a question I once asked Andrea Renee on this show, and of course you work with her at What's Good Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the question I now extend to you is, how does Rihanna Manuel separate herself from What's Good Games, from Xbox, from G4, and still be Rihanna? Are you Rihanna <laughs> and you happen to work for those places? Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about that. How do you separate yourself from being known in one particular mold to another? Yeah. I mean, that that's very simple for me. It's like, <laughs> I am a lot of things. And... um a former Xbox employee, a uh, member of What's Good Games, uh, employee at G4. Those are only parts of me. Um, also a big hair enthusiast. Uh, I've been doing my own hair for the last 10 plus years. I love dancing. I love choreographing. I like making off-color jokes when I'm not on podcasts. Uh, I, I, I'm, there's a lot of stuff to me, and I like sharing that. And I've been doing that more and more often as I started streaming on Twitch this year. Um, because I've been told by many people that I should stop hiding parts of myself from the world, and I'm trying to work on that. But more than anything, what differentiates me from all of the positions I've had is like I am going to tell you something that I believe, but I'm also going to try to listen to you and understand where you're coming from so that we can find a common ground. That That's that's probably my biggest brand note as Rihanna Manuel is like, I want to know about you and what makes us similar. I want to know where we connect. I want to know how we can make each other's lives better. I want to know what opportunities I can bring to you. I want to know what interesting things you can teach me about. I love connecting with humans and I love seeing them thrive. So that's how I would say uh, I'm separate as an individual. That's brilliant. Does that, uh, does that extend into the relationships you build with other content creators? Of course, you've got the big sites, Kind of Funny, What's Good Games. Uh, people have found you on social media through different advocacy uh, approaches. Of course, now you, you're doing all types of adorb stuff. Danny Pena and Gamertag Radio are all <laughs> over the social medias. Uh, working with other content creators, does that continue to mold and change who you are, extend your your knowledge of, of the industry, as it were? Absolutely. I mean, I think every conversation is a learning opportunity and it doesn't have to be. It could be uh, we're making poop jokes today. But I mean, even then I could learn something from some poop jokes. But I I think there's always an opportunity to add to what colors you as a human, like what perspective you're allowed to to open up your mind to see. I think being with Danny has opened up to my mind to a lot more Latino history, especially in America. And there's a lot there to unpack. Um, being friends with someone like Andrew Renee has opened me up to a lot more in the LGBTQ space. She's brought up by, by two queer parents. Like, like there, there's a lot of things that I learn from every person that I meet and that I work with and, and that I integrate into my life. And I, I can't imagine living any other way. I can't imagine talking to somebody and not finding something fascinating to learn from them. Like it's, it's sort of, it doesn't exist for me. <laughs> any any person I speak with, I'm inspired by, I'm motivated by, and and I want to continue a relationship with. It, it makes it really difficult because I have a, a million friends, but but I like to think that I, I take a little piece of every one of them with me. That's lovely. I, I love hearing that. And 
uh, I, I might actually be ruining this conversation when I now ask because <laughs> other people are, are we, we solicited questions and mm-hmm. I feel like some of these relationships with that you've built with people sure. might be coming back to haunt you here. Yeah, I can uh, guess which one you're talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, tell me, uh, why is NSYNC the best band, mm. best boy band, uh, and maybe, you know, how this story came about? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, here's here's what's going down. T.L. Foster on Twitter, amazing human, wonderful, wonderful person, and um, and I have a back and forth about boy bands, and this was born out of a moment where I did uh, a guest appearance on his podcast live from the pool house, and along with Honey Child, and at the end, I did mention that on a previous episode that I listened to, um, I thought they had the wrong take on the best boy bands, and... It has not stopped since. TL has been hounding me about NSYNC from that moment. And I will say now, I I have a lot of very, very loved boy bands, but the actual definitive answer is New Edition. That is the correct answer. And TL can fight me on that the next time we're allowed to see each other post-COVID. But it, it's it's mostly just a fun back and forth for him to, to tease me and to jerk my chain and... I love the kid. He's very, very talented. Again, T.L. Foster. And um, (laughs) yeah, that part of him is definitely going to live on in my mind for the rest of my life, for sure. He's not going to let it go. Oh, man. Okay, so that's you said that and the way you described it was just so much how I feel about this next person's question. Mr. (laughs) Joseph Moran, he hosts a podcast called The Trophy Room. He's one of Mm. my closest friends, but he's awful, Rihanna. I just... (laughs) Mr. Badbit, no. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Do you know this kid? It's just, oh, man. (laughs) He says, greetings, Rihanna. It's awesome to meet you at WGG's PAX panel. Whatever, Joe. We get it. You met met Rihanna and I didn't get to. (laughs) Whatever. It's fine. He says, I have a friend. For anonymity's sake, we'll call him Duke. Duke never wants to play Apex with us. My question is, why is Luke or Duke uh, the worst, and how do we get him back into Apex? Mm. he's calling me out re i i I hear the call out and and i feel it on a spiritual level because why aren't you playing apex because it's one of the best games ever made here's the thing re and i and i and i will i'll go i'll take this to my grave apex is fantastic it's fantastic i love it i love it when that game launched it did something for me as a longtime titanfall fan Mm -hmm. i love it but i got every achievement i one k'd it and I've moved on. I've evolved, Re. Oh, my God. And but it is not for the achievements, Luke. That's not why you play Apex. You play Apex for the moments of greatness. We've had many moments of greatness. And now, and, and this, is the, this is the funniest part, we've played plenty of Apex, lots of Warzone, uh, and we're currently in Fortnite together as a group because our team is now four. We, we are four strong. Can't do quads in, in Apex at the moment. Sure. Um, but I have a lot of love for Apex. I'm loving Fortnite, now because it's an action figure simulator. I discovered yeah. Fortnite in December 2020. So, like, a little slack. To me, it's the new greatness, right? Okay. Shiny new object. I get it. Yep. But Apex just launched its new season. You're a diehard fan. I'm sure mm-hmm. you're playing other games as well. But, but should I be going back to Apex? Real talk? You, absolutely real talk you should. And here's why. Despite the fact that they got rid of the double tap on the EVA 8 shotgun, which is one of my favorite pieces of loadout, in any game, because it just feels really good to double tap a shotgun. 
it has Fuse, which is an incredible new character. Very OP. They're definitely going to buff him soon. So now's the time to get in there and really have your favorite explosion fantasies. They've changed the map completely. So everybody's sort of reset on where the drop, the hot drops are. Um, there's a new meta with a new gun, a 30-30 repeater. So people don't really know how to play distance game anymore. So you can take advantage of that. Like basically, it's just owning noobs. Like now is the time to jump in again because you can own noobs with your prior, your prior experience. So I do you like owning noobs. I, I do like owning noobs. I was a big fan of the longbow for a long time. That was something You're going to like the 30-30 if you like the longbow. This is, this is what the longbow used to be. All right, here's the deal. I can get back into Apex, but we cannot <laughs> tell Joe it's because of him. That is, that is okay, the rule. Tell him it was my fault. Blame I can do that. Me. I, will, I yeah. will blame you in the best ways. Ree, before <laughs> we close out, what, what else are you playing? Where would you point people to, to game-wise before you talk about your socials? Yeah, um, still trying to finish this freaking level five raid boss and Tetris effect connected. Um, yes, Tetris has raids and they're incredibly difficult once you get to level five. Uh, also playing some Sea of Thieves. Yes. <laughs> which has been hilarious and awful in all the best ways um, because I have no idea what I'm doing. And I didn't even know you could get killed on the respawn island, but apparently you can. And I did. Uh, so I've been playing that. Um, recently got into some Call of Duty Zombies. They just recently released the Firebase Z, the new map. I think I saw Worlds First earlier today actually complete the storyline of the Zombies campaign, which a lot of people don't ever get to see. So that was cool. But I'll probably get back in there and try to recreate some of that magic. And uh, what else? Tetris, Apex, Sea of Thieves, Zombies. I might get back into Warzone. Ooh, you're gonna, so you're you're the types to do multiple battle royales at the same time. Yeah, I like switching games. I switch consoles and games all the time. Um, actually, oh yeah, I forgot. I'm playing Immortals: Phoenix Rising on my Switch Lite, and I'm probably gonna migrate my save order my over to my Xbox so I can play on the big screen for a little while. But yeah, I, I, I play more than one BR at a time. I play more than one shooter at a time. Um, I like to try to keep my brain agile because. <laughs> It's getting up there in age and definitely feeling the years, but it's fun to switch it up and have different friends for different games sometimes and, and see w what you can bring to each experience that's new based on, you know, what you played before. So I think it makes me a better gamer. I would hope so. And I, and I like that you're playing games that, uh, to my mind, are lighthearted. Tetris can be intense, but there's a lighthearted calmness, particularly with effect. And then Sea of mm -hmm. Thieves and uh, Immortals Phoenix Rising, both there's a lightness to it that you don't get because of the fantastical elements. And they both brought me a bit of respite uh, over a, a rough year, particularly the ending of last year. So I'm glad you're enjoying that. That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. And especially Tetris Effect Connected and single player, as you're mentioning. It's delightful. Like, it just feels good and... I actually got my mom hooked on it, and she's been playing it on her PC on Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, and she can't put it down. She's like, this is just, I just get lost, and it's just so, so beautiful, and I'm like, that's so great, Mom. I love that you're gaming on a PC. This makes me really proud. Proud daughter. That's awesome. That's so cool. Well, Re, I've kept you for a long time. We didn't even touch on G4. We need. To, I, I'm, I suppose <laughs> I'll ask you to say that in some closing. But let people know where they can find you, where they should look for you in the future, uh, and if you want to mention anything about G4, or whatever you're able, feel free. Yeah, sure. I'll do it in reverse order. So G4 is a gaming network. It, it was a thing back in the day, and it's going to look way different now. But essentially, it's just comedy with a gaming habit. And we've recently launched B4G4, which is us 
doing what we can in COVID since, you know, it's difficult to get production crews safely recording right now. And so we're doing some lower level lift videos. We're releasing them uh, on YouTube primarily, but we'll also be doing some live streaming stuff. And we're looking for feedback. Like, let us know who you want to see on the shows, who we should be talking to for talent, um, what games you want us to play. Like, talk to us because we're listening. Like, we're all just sitting here at our computers anyway. So, you know, hit us up on Reddit. Hit us up in the Discord. Um, it's uh, g4tv.com slash b4g4 for all of the FAQs and links to the YouTube channels. And yeah, let us know what you think. Um, that's sort of what this time is for. Uh, as far as where you can find me, um, always at Twitter, <laughs> Rihanna Tweets Now. That's R-I-A-N-A Tweets Now. I post all kinds of stuff there, like, you know, maybe a goofy poop joke here and there. And definitely educational tools and, and things to share for activism and inclusion but also just like my love of WandaVision and <laughs> random stuff I see on the internet. So uh, give me a follow. And then I will always tweet when I'm going live on Twitch. And that's at Rihanna Twitches now. There's a theme here. And uh, I'm kind of sticking to whatever I want to play at the time. So I'm not going to say I'm any type of streamer. But I'm usually going to be playing games. Uh, Danny and I, Danny Godfrey from Gamer, uh, sorry, from Gamertag Radio, have discussed maybe doing a dance stream where we teach people how to salsa or merengue. We're going to work on that because DMCA is difficult to work around. But yeah, you, you can see all kinds of stuff on my Twitch channel as well. Rihanna Manuel, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Honestly, I'm glad we, I'm really glad we finally got to talk because it's been a long time coming. <laughs>